0: Hello, everyone. It's Mark Thompson, and this is the Chief Executive Podcast. This is the second in our series on women in leadership, and I have Dr. Benita Thompson, the foremost expert on collaborative leadership and a New York Times bestselling author here with me today.
1: I think that these ladies face the greatest challenge that any leader faces, which is that moment in which we don't see ourselves as a leader, but we have to step forward. And each one of them did it in their own way, and it's a a wonderful lesson for all of us.
0: Please enjoy this segment of Women on Leadership. I am just delighted today to be able to introduce you to Laura Tyson, who served as Dean of the London Business School, Dean of UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, and is an extraordinary economist and university leader who is currently a distinguished professor at the Graduate School and a senior fellow of institutions that are really charting a path in terms of understanding the economy and labor markets and how does that men and women can serve in more high impact roles. She served as the 16th chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisers and the second director of the National Economic Council under President Bill Clinton, Tyson was the first woman to hold each of those posts, and she remains the only person to have served in both posts. A remarkable talent. Listen to Laura.
2: When I made the transition to Washington, there was no time, and I was thrown into the situation at a very high Level an unexpectedly high level, uh, and my initial response was to try to do them all myself, and uh, that drove me almost crazy. Um, and I realized uh, that either I was going to have to change, or I was going to have to give up the job. Literally, that there was there was those were the two choices. And so I very quickly started to uh, identify people who I could really rely upon to do things for me. And, you know, that's been a key part of what I've done ever since. Once I realized that, it was absolutely magical because then so much of what leadership is about, as you know, having studied it— is choosing the right people to have around you. And so all that, that lip service about how choosing talent is critically important to leadership, <laughs> I learned in a very uh, personal and direct way. Secondly, in that process, I also had to think very carefully about what it is that I should do so I think what you do is through self-knowledge you kind of say well what what are what I what am I particularly good at in this leadership this broad leadership area and what where would someone else with a different set of uh, skills be even better
3: you mentioned that balance was important to you and then you said especially for women right I wonder if you could just elaborate on that you think that's that's true more more for women than it is for men
2: I do I, I really do because I have to say that with my I've been in a profession and that in my life history is one in which I've been among a small number of women in with a large number of men. And I have observed men and women talking about issues of balance, but I've observed women acting on issues of balance. Men worry about issues of balance, but when push comes to shove, they tend not to make the tough choice that might be necessary to achieve balance. Women, by and large, in my own experience, tend to make that choice more frequently. So it's an issue for everyone, but uh, action uh, is the difference, I would say, say between men and women that I've observed.
3: Well, it certainly puts life in perspective. You're married and you're a mom and you have other interests, I assume, in your family as well.
2: Women in my generation, I would say, by and large, have made um, similar choices to mine. I would, and maybe that's because women in my generation were sort of more at the vanguard of of all of this. It was less traditional for uh, women of my generation to sort of take leadership roles, and and much more traditional in my generation to have a sort of uh, to leave with a very wonderful degree from a seven Sisters college which is where my generation of women went because you couldn't go to Princeton or Yale or uh, at the time um, you go to a seven sister school you get a really good education you'd work for a few years you get married and that and then you would sort of disappear from the workplace you might go back but it was not with an aspiration or even an, ex- an expectation aspiration that you would become uh, a leader after all you probably had been out of the workplace long enough to make that quite difficult So I do think that for women of my generation who actually went into, from the beginning, sort of careers that ended up being high-power careers, there really was a tendency to take this balance issue extremely seriously because you were, in a sense kind of breaking the traditional rules. And so you would always kind of look and say, okay, well, how far can I go? Yes. I think that probably is not so true with younger women because it, because the tradition has broken down significantly. So the trade-offs may be um, less palpable, less uh, adverse.
3: And in fact, you mentioned some qualities that... Uh We tend to think of them as more feminine or more coming from the feminine side. Collaboration, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, uh, work-life balance Mm -hmm. uh, is one. Those traits that we would Mm -hmm. typically uh, see as more feminine, collaboration, and the others, Mm -hmm. are coming to the forefront in leadership. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you see that happening? And if so, does that that must bode well for? young women who are Yeah, I think I think
2: it actually does. I think I think that the focus on collaboration and teamwork, which has been a growing focus in, say, business school education, plays very well to the to the talents of of women or the natural tendencies of women to sort of uh, solve problems in that fashion, as opposed to a hierarchical fashion, as opposed to a kind of, there's a concept in economics sort of the zero-sum game, you know, I win, you lose. Sure. Okay, And um, I think actually uh, there there is unbalance. women tend to see more as a kind of win-win situation. That is, we'll all win together, or if not, we'll all lose together. But we're basically, uh, there's the natural tendency to cooperate or collaborate, as opposed to take advantage to succeed at someone else's expense. Now, having said that, I'm very, very cognizant of the fact there are lots of men who are very cooperative and collaborative and team-oriented and can work in these kinds of cultures as well as there are lots and lots of women who are much more zero-sum game, ambitious, uh, hierarchical. So we're talking about tendencies on average here, but there are lots and lots of... I don't think
3: anyone's going to believe that that's listening. I think that most (laughs) people think that the distinction between the sensitive man of the 90s and Bigfoot is that there have been sightings of Bigfoot. And I... (laughs) Uh
2: Uh-huh. No, I don't... I actually have always thought that that's not true. I'm not just... I mean, but again, I tend to think of it in terms of statistical distributions, you know, and and men and women are different, but they have a lot of similarities and the crossovers are pretty strong.
3: Good leaders get people to work for them and great leaders get people to work for one another. That is the motivation.
2: Oh, that's great. That's is, good.
3: Is, yeah. is that they love those people around them, that they're willing to work with them and right. work for them. Right. As opposed to just working because they're inspired by the person that happens to be at the helm.
2: I would put it only slightly differently. I think it's not about working for you or the great leader, it's working for the, um, the institution that you are leading to um, get people to feel committed. To a common purpose that is larger than any of them, but from which all of them will benefit.
3: Is there any one element that, if you said it, it made the difference between a good leader, or effective leader, and somebody that was really a great leader? If someone asked you that at the London Business School, one of your one of your mentees or one of the students there, what would you what would you come up with? One thing that you think would be You know, what
2: comes to my mind, and so this probably is the my, my basic approach is. Um, maybe something we haven't talked about enough here, which is um, respect uh, for those around you. And the reason I think that's so important is in order to be a great leader, an effective leader, you're going to have to motivate people So you are, or inspire them, so you're going to have to actually really respect them. You're going to have to rely upon them a lot because you can't do everything yourself, so that means you're going to really have to respect them because in order to rely upon them, you've really got to respect them. You're going to have to be really sensitive to their own personal trade-offs and concerns because otherwise... Uh, there will come a, a moment where your insensitivity to them will actually undermine their ability or their interest in working with you in the interests of the organization. Leadership requires that you will be working with many, many people and that you have to start with a deep respect for them. And I think that I learned that years and years ago in the classroom and that what has probably been the most important part of my life has been to sort of to get in the mind of someone on the other side of the table and say how are they feeling why are they here what what are they trying to accomplish how is their life sort of tied up in the life of my endeavor so that would be my answer
3: at some point in your career do you, did you actually make a decision to lead an actual decision to lead
2: yeah i guess i guess i probably did while I was in Washington. Almost a defining moment was disagreeing with the, the president and the first lady. And it, it had to do with the fact of I was put in this job to be chair of the Council of Economic Advisors and I kept asking myself, what is this job? What, what does it mean to do this job effectively? It was to give objective advice, regardless of whether that was what people wanted to hear, because that was the job. And I remember going into the meeting, and uh, so sitting around the table, and the president was on one side, and the first lady was on the other side of the of this big oval uh, table in the that's basically the cabinet room. And there were at the table all of the sort of heads of agencies that would be involved. And uh, so I remember asking each of these questions, and neither of them agreed with what I said, and. I was the only person at a senior level in the administration who was willing to do this. Uh, and it was remarked upon in many publications of that period that everybody else sort of sat there quietly, and that I, who was relatively naive and and not had not really been trained into this position as effectively as others had been because they'd been preparing for their jobs for ten years, I just basically said, "Well, this is what I think, and this is why I think it. and 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 that was, it's was a defining moment to me because I did that, although it was highly stressful to do, because I was very clear that that's what leadership meant in that job. And so for me to do that job right and leave that institution and all it represented, I had to do that. When the president announced that I was to become head of the National Economic Council, he praised me for unfailingly frank direct and honest advice. And I always say that's the advice I gave him. He didn't listen to (laughs) but at least he was unfailingly frank and direct. That's all true.
0: I'd love to introduce you to Dr. Tammy Jernigan. Jernigan always dreamed of being an astronaut. When she wasn't playing sports in her youth, Tammy was a varsity athlete who loved competition while earning degrees in engineering, space, physics, and astronomy. She reached her dream of becoming an astronaut in the 80s. And since then, she's logged in over 1,500 hours in space. She earned the Distinguished Service Medal in the space program not only once, but twice. And when I caught up with Dr. Jenrigan, she was just a few days away from what she really described as a continuing mission in space, which continues to transform the way we see life on Earth. Listen to Tammy.
4: When I came to NASA, I think I really learned the meaning of teamwork. And even though I had competed in athletics, I think I had never competed in such a way in which, you know, your life is on the line. When you're in space with a crew, you're all in this together in a way that's unlike here on Earth. But I really think the importance of teamwork and looking out for each other. I learned the importance of leading by example. I learned the importance of stepping back and remembering the big picture, not just the small problems from day to day. It's probably the the lesson over the last 20 years that I really uh, began to appreciate more and more.
5: Can you take us through a moment, saving the names aside, where it was particularly challenging for you to make the transition between being a strong individual contributor, a person who was pursuing her own dream of, of physics, and having to run and work with a team?
4: I think when you're assigned to a flight crew, you want to do everything. You know, you wanted to be assigned to be the lead in everything on on the mission. And you realize that that's not a reasonable way to operate, that you need to step back and that you can't be the lead in everything, that there's some things that you have to be support and not the lead.
5: So when you were feeling ambitious about wanting to make that contribution, what was going through your mind?
4: Making sure that I had the emotional discipline to do the right thing, maybe to voluntarily give something up. And I have done that on flights, but I will tell you that that did not come so easily for me.
5: Did someone have to talk to you about it?
4: No, it was the right thing to do. might have taken me a little while to step up and do it, but eventually I did.
5: In your case, what were the signs that gave you a personal recognition that you needed to think about sharing the leadership roles as well as taking leadership roles?
4: A couple folks on the crew were going to end up being unhappy, and a couple folks on the crew were going to end up feeling underutilized and not as important and that would have been a bad thing.
5: How did you come to be aware of that, and and, uh, why did you care?
4: People are pretty vocal about (laughs) what they think. You know, we're all a group of type A personalities. It it was just going to be good for the crew chemistry. It was important for the crew chemistry.
5: And why were you getting the opportunities and the others weren't initially?
4: I I was experienced. I had the benefit of many flights that had been part of many flights that had gone well. So I had tremendous experience. I knew I could do it. They knew I could do it.
5: When you joined this flight team, you've got a group of very bright, very ambitious, very capable people, perhaps all competing for leadership positions. And as the rookie, how did you feel about that, and how did you get your first leadership roles?
4: On my first mission, I was very fortunate. I had a, a very good commander, Brian O'Connor, who was a Marine colonel. And as the flight engineer, he gave me tremendous responsibility. And I thrived having that kind of responsibility, and I appreciated it.
6: Why did he give you that
5: opportunity? You were just the newest on the flight. You think <laughs> with the the competition for those roles, why would you have the opportunity?
4: It was a combination of I had a good reputation in the office, and then there were some practical aspects. As the flight engineer, I could operate the experiments If I wasn't one of the subjects, my physiology wasn't in any way compromised. So if we had to do an emergency deorbit, I could jump in the seat and be ready. Um, But also you develop confidence in people by training with them. And so my level of responsibility increased as we trained month after month after month. But he was willing to let go and give that to me even though I was a first time flyer. And it was exactly the right environment for my personality. I really enjoyed that level of responsibility and appreciate it being given to me, especially on my first flight. We can imagine over the years, as you fly more, become more confident, you meet new rookies who are just as ambitious and just as desirous of a lot of responsibility. And so it's important to remember where you were (laughs) at that time and how you wanted to be treated. And so there were times where I actually relinquished prime responsibility on some tasks to give now people with maybe one or two flights experience that opportunity to grow professionally and show what they could do. It's amazing what people will do when they understand that their effort is important and appreciated and that you acknowledge that publicly. There's nothing like giving public recognition to somebody for a job well done that motivates them. It's it's just tremendous what that does.
5: You're just about to have your first child. If you were to look back at uh, your childhood and the indications that you would want to pursue astrophysics, could you talk about where you might have first picked up that passion?
4: I remember as a child always enjoying science and math and always being curious about things. And I was fortunate. I I had a mother who raised four children who um, I think instilled in me a belief there's nothing I couldn't do and certainly supported my interest in something that was somewhat unconventional at the time. And I also remember when we landed on the moon, when we put our first astronauts on the moon, running outside and looking at the moon and being fascinated by this idea that, of course, one couldn't see the astronauts. (laughs) But just knowing that I was looking at the moon and there were human beings on board, I found a very, very intriguing idea. But it was truly exciting. I thought that I thought someday it would be a privilege to be part of that great adventure.
5: Did you really believe that? And what? It, how did people react if you shared it with others?
4: They thought it was exciting. You know, we were kids. We didn't see any boundaries, you know.
5: What about a girl being involved in that program? Did you see any boundaries there?
4: To be perfectly honest, I did not. I didn't think it made a difference. I thought that if I did well in school and well in sports and, you know, got along well with my friends and my community, I did not see that as a reason that I couldn't be part of that program. And again, it was a mission worth doing, that exploration was a mission worth doing, and that if you're going to pick something to do in life, choose something worthy of your time and your interest and your passion.
5: Why is it a mission worth doing?
4: I think that part of the quality of human life is understanding the world around us and expanding our minds. We're not here just to eat and sleep, but we're here to think and to dream. And I I think it's uh, something... If you talk to children, they haven't lost that. You know, They're not bogged down with paying the mortgage and the practicalities of life, but they have this intrinsic curiosity and this desire to learn. You don't have to explain to a 7-year-old why we ought to explore. But I think it enhances the quality of life to expand our minds, to expand our understanding. And then there are some very practical things that have happened, you know, as a result of the investment in the space program, as a result of the investment in much of the research that's done here at Lawrence Livermore Lab. um, Those technologies are used to improve life right here on Earth.
5: Could you share with us a time when you've had a setback on the way to your dream?
4: It's not that there weren't comments made along the way, or that every professor at every university encouraged women. It's that nobody that was really important to me, whose opinion that I respected, discouraged me. And I think in in terms of setbacks, certainly there were minor ones. You know, not everything I studied was particularly easy for me. I think what I learned, though, was to keep at it, that persistence was probably the most important quality that one could possess in terms of success. I got assignments that grew me professionally, even at 18 and 19 years old. So I got to watch science and technology unfold in a realistic environment. And I I feel like I have been very blessed in that regard. And what I like to tell kids is that just because you don't understand something the first time doesn't mean that you shouldn't keep trying, because once you understand it, you have it forever. The most disappointing aspect of my career was on my fourth flight when the hatch didn't open and our spacewalks were canceled. The team had worked very hard and so obviously as one of the spacewalkers that Tom Jones was the other he and I were both very disappointed but also the people on the ground and so I retrained for another flight <laughs> and kept at it and then on my fifth flight was able to do the spacewalk.
5: Tell us about your first spacewalk.
4: Liftoff is a real kick in the pants. And so you know that you're headed off into a frontier that you haven't been to before. The view of the Earth from the vantage point of space is truly magnificent. It's difficult to describe how magnificent a view that is. When you're inside the space shuttle, the windows are very thick and they're not very large. And so you don't get the same... Experience from inside that you do is out. And I think I was just taken aback at how remarkable of you it was of such a, such a beautiful planet we inhabit.
5: You describe uh, your interaction with teams, you describe your, your passion for sports <laughs> and so forth. Does it really help a person with their ambitions to be an athlete? What difference does that make? What meaning do you think that has in the overall scheme of, of your life pursuits?
4: Not that there aren't other vehicles, but I think athletics can be a very important vehicle for learning about things like teamwork, about um, pushing hard toward a common goal, about um, being a gracious winner and also being a gracious loser. When things don't go your way to not get discouraged, train a bit harder and try again. I think those are all lessons that carry you through any career that you decide to pursue.
5: Any thoughts about your parents and your three siblings in terms of your relationship and how it might have influenced where you've come today?
4: I really have to give credit to my mother for truly encouraging me. She raised four kids alone, and she did instill in me a belief there was nothing that I couldn't do. You know, never did I hear that that's not possible or you can't do that or you're not smart enough or good enough to do that. There's a story, though, that might embarrass her, but when I was in high school, I was playing in the CIF finals state finals in volleyball. You play a number of teams, and it's an elimination tournament. So you play in a large gym, six high school girls on a team. So winning the state championship is a a very important thing in volleyball, especially at that time when the California teams really dominated. So the gym was packed. It was a very big crowd, very enthusiastic crowd, and the first game had just begun, and we were probably you know, ahead seven to four. And I came down and I tore the cartilage in my knee and dislocated it. So I was, they called a timeout, they took me off the court, and the trainer popped my knee back in place, taped it up. And this trainer was working as hard as he can, and I was pleading with him and pleading with the coach to put me back in, and they did.
5: What did that feel like?
4: It hurt, but this were state finals. And during this time, my mother was, we were from Tennessee, so my mother had this uh, really charming southern accent. So she wasn't hard to pick out of the crowd. <laughs> and so I could hear my mother from the stands saying, get back in the game, get back in the game. <laughs> you know, not, oh my God, my daughter's injured. But she was saying, get back in the game, get back in the game. And I, I get a lot of mileage out of that to this day.
5: Your mother encouraged you to get back in the game, but you were about to get back in the game anyway.
4: Well, this is true.
5: They were they just planning to take you out of the game at that point?
4: I don't think it was clear. I don't think I ever gave them enough time <laughs> to know what they might have done without encouragement. I mean, of course they ask an athlete, are you okay? Do you think you can go back in? And there's only one right answer to that question. <laughs> so, you know, if your back's not broken, you're going to ask to go back in and compete.
0: When you think about making a difference in the world, most people hate controversy, but Dr. Nadine Strassen, well, she thrives on it. She was a professor of New York Law School, and then she became president of an organization which is absolutely the one that many, many organizations around the world have a bone to pick, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. She made a transformational leap in bringing that Conflict oriented, democracy focused organization into the hearts and minds and controversies of modern media. Listen to Nadine Strassen.
7: Clearly, I had to develop a tolerance for unfair criticism, and I found that amazingly easy, Uh, perhaps because it's an organization that's being attacked rather than me as an individual, but of course I as an individual am subject to a lot of unfair attacks within the organization as well as without. We're we're nothing if not contentious and disputatious among our own ranks. And there too, I think I've been able to distance myself from um, the criticism because I, I, I realize that I am a magnet, not because of who I am as an individual, but because of the position I occupy. So I was able to transcend previous personality flaws, not to become flawless, but of course, but to find it a lot easier to adjust to the situation.
6: Did you find it's uh, developing a thick skin, or is it just sort of getting to a point where it's not an issue?
7: It's not a thick skin in the sense that I'm not Uh, insensitive and not open to uh, see if there is at least a kernel of truth in criticism, something constructive that I can learn from it as an individual or as the leader of my organization. Uh, But I do not let it incapacitate me in any way and 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 I see the contrast for example with when um, some of the younger employees in the ACLU or some of the less experienced ones who are shocked and really find it personally debilitating and I have to give them pep talks to to bring them along
6: get used to it don't take it too seriously and don't
7: take it personally yeah and and and, and you could even see it as a compliment people wouldn't see you as such a lightning rod such a a target unless they saw that you were making headway on your agenda, and their agenda is a very different one. In some ways, I can say what Ronald Reagan once famously said about a criticism the ACLU had made of one of his policies. He said, I hear the ACLU has criticized me. I wear that criticism like a badge of honor. And I would say, well, when uh, his attorney general denounced us uh, as the criminal's lobby, I wore that as a badge of honor.
6: It sounds like there's just a constant Level of controversy, that's got to be tough.
7: You have to be an optimist in my line of work or an idealist, or you could never carry forward. Therefore, uh, you are absolutely right given how broad the ACLU's agenda is and the fact that we are nonpartisan, ideologically neutral. Uh, we neutrally defend the same freedom for every idea for every organization completely across the political spectrum, no matter who you are, no matter what societal group you might be lumped into, whether it be in terms of race or gender or sexual orientation or political party, you name it, you should have the same full and equal freedoms to participate in our society, to advocate your point of view, and to um, have equal opportunities before the law and uh, in the economic sphere.
6: This actually sounds, at least on paper, the job description of the worst job in the world. We want you to get into a situation where you know there's going to be controversy, where you know that there are going to be people who are going to throw rocks at you, You're going to have to work exceptionally long hours you're going to have to 200 presentations in a year means at least every other day you're probably doing multiple days today is quite
7: typical i gave a speech a lecture in providence rhode island in the morning i'm giving an after dinner talk in new york tonight and several media interviews in between (laughs) so here's
6: here's the question so we're saying you've got lots of controversy hard work long hours now Tell me, why would anybody take this job?
7: <laughs> you see that I'm smiling and laughing. To me, it is the best job in the whole world. And you can. I, I hope I, the, my voice conveys the, the joy and exuberance that and, and privilege um, that I feel. My grand salary as ACLU president is a goose egg. I am a complete volunteer and if you are passionately committed to the concept, uh, and not just the concept but to the reality of individual liberty and equality, and you are familiar with the opportunities that exist in the American legal and political system to enforce and to implement those ideals, But you are also aware of the constant injustices and the constant falling away from those ideals, whether because of ignorance. You know, a lot of government officials simply don't even know what the civil rights laws provide, what the Bill of Rights provides. Sometimes it's through bad faith, you know, intentional disregard of the law because they think they can get away with it but the wonderful and exciting thing is the empowerment that one feels. You hear about an injustice and you know that you can do something about it. Not you personally, but you through an organization that is there on the ground all over the country and you know ready to do battle and known to be ready to do battle. The harder you work, the more energized you are by the justice of the cause and the opportunity to really make a difference in the lives of real people. So you put all of that together and you get to head the organization that love us or hate us, everybody agrees, is the most active, effective advocate for translating those ideals into reality. I would pay to do this (laughs) and uh, it is it is it is an absolute joy now i have to say this i i do earn my living as a law professor i love teaching and i think that the law is a wonderful profession but if you look at surveys of attitudes of lawyers and you talk to lawyers especially young lawyers you see enormous unhappiness malaise and lack of excitement at best, real alienation and frustration at worst. and I see that completely across the legal profession, whether you're talking about powerful partners at established Wall Street firms or whether you're talking about solo practitioners. The one exception I see are any lawyer in the profession, anyone in the profession who is somehow involved in using the law degree to advance his or her own conception of justice. We have this passionate commitment toward justice. We may have different conceptions of what it is, but we believe in it and therefore derive great joy from using our professional skills to advance it. fun! It's it, as well as being, um, it's good work in both senses of the term. Where was the spark that lit this flame
6: inside of you? When when was this? What, what occurred?
7: As far back as I can remember, long before I had the vocabulary, Constitution, First Amendment, freedom. Some of my early memories inc- go back to kindergarten, I guess. Now, I, I, nobody had told me about a constitutional right to freedom of speech. In fact, Back in the early 50s, when I was in kindergarten, the ACLU hadn't yet established in the Supreme Court, as we would in 1969, that school kids do have freedom of speech.
6: Were you always a leader? Was this something that, for example, as a kid, did you find yourself just naturally gravitating towards this position?
7: My concept of leadership, which is not necessarily having a title, but it's exercising certain kind of behavior. I think uh, being willing to speak up to authority, uh, being willing to stand on principle even if it's unpopular. I use the term more to describe what you do rather than what position you happen to occupy. In other words I'm sure there are people who have prestigious titles including a lot of elected officials. I mean to, to me So many of these people are the quintessential followers rather than leaders. They follow the shifting tides of public opinion and adjust their positions on the issues accordingly. So my model always goes back to uh, John F. Kennedy's Profiles and Courage, people who had the courage of their convictions through thick and thin, and and many of them, uh, in fact, I think just about every character in that book or historical figure in that book, at some point or other is, in fact, voted out of office or denied office precisely because of that quality, which, in my view, made that person a leader, whether or not he continued to be president or in the Senate. Determination and integrity, I think those are our qualities that um, you either have from the beginning or you don't. And you know as an educator that's a little bit frustrating to me in the sense that um, I have to work with the raw material that I can no longer, in, I can't change it, but I think that there are probably a lot of people whose potential let's say, I think you're born with the potential. Uh, and, And as an educator, I really try to nurture that and to shape it and to encourage it.
1: Bailey DeCastro, as a teenager, focused her passions on ending violence against women by fighting for new legislation in California before she was even old enough to vote. But first she had to overcome her own challenges. DeCastro would later go on to empower youth to change their environments using healthy, positive approaches.
8: Let's bring it back to sophomore year, (laughs) Um, when Bailey had green hair and wore baggy jeans and um, dreamed of getting a tattoo. I struggled with an eating disorder from the time that I was in seventh grade. And low self-esteem, it told me I needed a lot of fixing. One of my teachers, my women's studies teacher, who also taught me in history, saw some inkling of potential, some redeeming quality about me, and she kind of took me under her wing. And, you know, despite my cynicism, I somehow allowed myself to be mentored by her, which I think is a huge part of my success, is allowing myself to be mentored. Because once I became comfortable with the fact that, You know, I've done all these horrific things to myself and I've thought all these horrific things. And there's a whole community of women out there who are grappling with the exact same things as I am. And then allowing myself to be mentored, allowing a woman who's probably gone through the same thing in her own adolescence, turn my wounds into wisdom. Find a mentor, you know, find someone who you connect with, who, you know, has a philosophy, has a life philosophy that... You can that you can understand and that you can get behind. I think it's so important.
6: Okay, so you, I just make sure I'm understanding this. You're in school. You're a sophomore. You're now co-teaching the class. I got
8: really interested in women's studies, really interested in issues of body image and issues of um, media propaganda and um, how uh, the media kind of tells us that our self-worth has to be squeezed into a dress size.
6: When you're teaching the class, I mean, in other words, you were originally, you're a student in the class. Mm-hmm. How did you make the role in that transition from student to teacher?
8: Well, it's very difficult. And in fact, it's something that I've struggled with, you know, being a 17-year-old, you know, being a member of Senator Spears' staff, and at the same time being a member of the Youth Steering Committee. It's a balancing act, indeed. And rather than assuming a role as a facilitator or as a student, I think that a lot of the time I assumed the role as Bailey and whatever honest insight I could offer on it I, I try very hard not to be someone who I'm not.
6: Most people, or at least many people, would go, I'm seventeen years old. What does my opinion matter? What does you know, how can I step into this sort of a role? How can I make a difference?
8: Well, I decided that I wasn't going to live a life anymore of shouldn't, can't, or better not. Those were self-defeating messages that I had been feeding myself for so long. And I wasn't going to do it anymore. It wasn't taking me anywhere. It wasn't doing anything for me. And... Once I came to embrace that, failure is is an incredibly important step towards success. And that I wasn't going to spend my life wondering, you know, if I could have, if I would have. So I decided to kind of let go of my apprehensions. And being a young woman, walking into my first steering committee meeting, I was overwhelmed with thoughts of what What is she thinking about me? What is he thinking about me? And I sat, you know, very self-conscious, um, you know, not very outspoken. And when I came home from the first meeting, absolutely inspired by what I had heard and by the honesty of my peers, you know, I decided to let go of all those things. So I let go of my apprehensions. I let go of, you know, the fact that I was actually 15 or 16 years old at the time and, you know, that I perhaps didn't have a place, you know, working in a senator's office, you know, working on legislation, you know, being a leader. You just have to let go of all these ideas of can't. And once I let go of those and allowed myself to be completely engaged in what I was doing, then things just went, and I just went. For me, for me coming here is terrifying. Getting up and speaking at forensics tournaments and speech and debate tournaments is terrifying. I was a keynote speaker at the Young Women's Health Conference, speaking in front of a group of a thousand of my peers. In front of Aaron Brockovich, Janice Maricatani, Jan Hero, Nellie Galan, who's a famous entertainment executive, um, Willie Brown, Senator Spear. I was absolutely terrified. And when I went up on stage... I honestly thought I was going to have a heart attack and keel over in front of a thousand young women. How ironic would that have been at a Young Women's Health Conference for me to keel over? But I did it. I sat down. I was still breathing. And I was relieved. And I was relieved. And from that point on, I've, I've used that terror to my advantage. I've absolutely used it to my advantage. It's fuel for me. It really truly is. Janice Mirakatani gave me a huge hug before I went out on stage, was holding my hand. They knew that I was terrified and they could identify with the terror because they had been there. But having that support network, I knew even if I fell flat on my face that I was one step closer to my success, that that failure, that absolute flop would bring me one step closer because failure is a necessary ingredient to success. You know, it's the price you pay for taking risks. And I, and I have decided that I'm not going to live my life wondering what if, you know, the really creatively eccentric and absolutely nuts kind of a woman who's going to make a difference in this world. You cannot be task oriented. The movers and the shakers of this century have all been visionaries. You have to have a larger, a greater picture in mind.
6: Back when you had the green hair and the, the baggy jeans, what was your view of people involved in politics then? And what is your view now? And has it changed?
8: I was definitely a cynic. I was definitely a cynic. I was paranoid, uninformed. Um, and, you know, my generation is really a generation disillusioned. disillusioned by Monica Gate. disillusioned by Watergate. You know, disillusioned by plummeting stock market. By failing dot coms. By something that's ever changing. And I think that... One thing that this position has taught me is that a lot of disillusionment comes from, comes from ignorance, comes from misinformation, and that cynicism a lot of the times results from misinformation, fear, disillusionment. And it's a lot easier to be cynical and to alienate something than to, than to learn about it and really apply yourself and do something significant.
6: Now, I'm curious. I know that you are involved with SB 398. And you're involved with the actual creation of that legislation. Right. Have been testifying at Senate committee hearings. Right.
8: So the piece of legislation, SB 398, directs the Department of Education to develop a model conflict resolution curriculum for adoption in California's public schools due to recent school violence. So we developed this piece of legislation. Again, I was absolutely terrified. Senator Vasconcelos, he's he's a very... um, No BS kind of a guy. You know, I saw him slaughtering some of the witnesses before him. I admire him. I admire him as a legislator and I think he's incredible. But he was intimidating for your first experience up in the state capitol. And then we went up, you know, as they called up SB 398, we had to walk down the aisle. You know, you have the senators in a semicircle around you and you have a recessed stage you know, where you're speaking and you speak directly to the members. You know, my knees tend to melt. I have a physical reaction to fear. I I honestly thought I was going to get up. My knees were going to melt and I wasn't going to make it. But I made it. And I spoke from the heart. But I find that it's easy for me to speak about things when I speak from my heart, when I speak honestly, when I'm not trying to sound, you know, like a 30 or 40-year-old exec You know, when I'm speaking honestly from my heart and speaking about something in which I truly believe. There was a stabbing recently in the park next to Lowell. And, you know, these weren't gang members. You know, these were honor roll students. You know, these were Lowell kids. Lowell is a magnet school, so it has admission, uh, uh, merit-based admission. They can, you know, make A's in AP calculus, you know, but they can't resolve conflict through words. Once I realized that issues that conflict resolution attempts to address transcends the bounds of socioeconomic bounds, cultural bounds, ethnic bounds, um, gender bounds, it's everywhere and everybody needs it. And so the legislation actually directs the Department of Education to develop this curriculum for K through 12. But in the end, we got all I votes except for one member. I got hung up on the one member who we weren't connecting with, as opposed to being overwhelmed by the support that we were getting from the committee. But that wasn't what I was hearing. You know, I was hearing one member who we weren't connecting with. And so kind of in retrospect, I thought a little bit about how our memories of our successes and our failures are rarely indicative of the absolute truth. We're not the best because of our victories, and we're not the worst because of our defeats. And so it kind of challenged my perception of success. And that was a success, whispering in my ear, like a a bug in my ear saying, each one of you was sent here uniquely equipped and supplied to do something. Dig deep inside and find out what that something is.
6: How have your friends from school reacted to this? Are, um, are you still just Bailey? I've been
8: chided. It's okay, you know. But a, a lot of people have been really supportive. And in fact, I've gotten my friends involved in the legislative committee. Because I, I honestly feel like I want to share my excitement with every girl who struggles with thoughts of shouldn't, can't, or better not. With every girl who shares thoughts of self-doubt and grapples with problems similar to mine. And so I feel so compelled to include other women in my experience and you know bring them on board and expose them to new things it's not only a, a a task a job to bring other women you know on board with me but it you know i really feel it's my responsibility it's what i'm here for it's what i want to do
1: normal hotelling ran sage one of the most successful programs to end sex trafficking. She helped women get off drugs and off the streets with support programs that relied not on social workers, but on ex-prostitutes and ex-drug addicts to do the coaching. Norma's journey to change her own life circumstances and to benefit others is an inspiration to all of us.
9: A lot of times the past starts with uh, childhood abuse and molestation. When these children go to school, They very often are uh, disheveled, they're not sleeping well, they're unable to concentrate, they are angry, they're acting out, and what the school does at this very fragile time in the psychological development of children, uh, start telling these children that they are bad. Oh, Johnny or Susie, you're the disruption in this class. You know, you're causing all the disturbance. Go sit over there. And no one ever says, What's going on with this child? They start developing a self image. So, one, they have the problems in the home, the lack of support, the abuse. And then they get to an institution, and the institution starts reinforcing their negative self-image, and in fact, reinforcing the trauma. You've not only been hurt, but I don't care about that. You are the problem, you five-year-old, six-year-old, nine-year-old child. And then they get pushed aside. They don't get the attention of other kids who act more appropriately. Um, They start hanging out with groups that match their psychological makeup, groups that are using drugs, starting to use uh, substances to cover the pain. They very often run away from these homes, end up on the streets. When I was 38 years old and getting out of the criminal justice system, what I thought about myself was that I was a bad person, I was a criminal, and I was a whore. And that was when I was 38, and I was really sure about that.
6: There was some point where you got the vision. You got the idea where you dreamed the dream that has become sage and decided to do something about that, or at least started. Can you tell me about that? Can you recall what that was like and what happened?
9: When I was on the street, I remember looking around one night, it was about three o'clock in the morning, I was in the industrial area of San Francisco, very dangerous, very isolated, and I looked around and I said, I had this voice that said, you're supposed to be out here. You're supposed to experience this because someday you're going to be able to get off of the street and help other people understand.
6: And it's taken 10 years for it to really start to click.
9: Oh, yes. But 10 years is a very short time
6: Were there any to make
9: this, this amount of change.
6: Were there any times in the middle of that where you lie in bed at night and wondered what the heck you were doing?
9: There were times that I was petrified. Oh yeah, I was scared to death, and I I describe this a lot to our clients and my staff and everything, because trauma brings with it uh, a degree of, a large degree of anxiety, just the trauma alone, and I'm a trauma survivor, so I have the the anxiety, and here I was quitting all my jobs, um, not knowing how I was going to support myself doing things from scratch. I didn't, I, I did not want to do things the way anybody else had done them. I I wanted a whole new thing. And so as I was driving around from meeting to meeting, I was still recovering. And, um, it felt like a lion was roaring out of my stomach at times. And I was just holding onto that steering wheel, like going from place to place. I would walk down halls to professional meetings, having such severe flashbacks that it was, you know, just enough to just sit in that meeting and pretend that I was sane at that moment. And then as I would get a little bit better in my presentations to everybody and say what was needed, everybody started pointing the finger back to me and saying, you need to do that. That's your vision. That's your mission. And uh, it took quite a while for me to believe that I could actually do that. But it got to the point where I could not not do it. It was like birthing. I couldn't hold it back. The only way I thought of holding it back at that point was to commit suicide. And I was really at a pivotal point, like, I'm going to die. I don't want to live if I am not doing this work. I quit my jobs. I started some programs pro bono. I started searching out funding. I Lawyers came to me and started helping me. Incorporate as a nonprofit program. I started defining the program and um, I started using all of the tools that I teach other women. It's like changing my mind. I had to change my mind. I had to really get control of uh, feeling like I was going to be homeless again, um, that I was going to lose everything. I didn't know how to administer a program. I didn't know how to hire, train, supervise, any of that, but uh, it was just at that point it had to happen and I had to do it. I did not have the skills when I started.
6: I would assume that there's a certain level of difficulty to approach somebody who's living their life a certain way and to convince them that they have an alternative, that there's another option.
9: The most important part of our program is the peer education program, where ex-prostitutes, women with sexual abuse and violence in their backgrounds, uh, get to talk to other women and model who they could be. Before me, there was nobody that my community could look to and say, oh, you know, I can live free of drugs. I can live free of prostitution. I don't have to get beaten up. I don't have to be in the criminal justice system. I can run programs. You know, I can buy a car. I can rent uh, an apartment. I can get a job. I can get married. I can have children. You know, we show them. We not only have the full range of experience that they have experienced through violence and exploitation, we also have the full range of experience of life outside of violence and exploitation. What do
6: you see as your biggest role as the leader here?
9: My biggest role as the leader at SAGE is to identify and develop other leaders. I'm not going to manage you. I'm going to develop you as a leader. I don't want to get into power and control. Um, I don't want to be standing over you. I want self-directed people. And in that, you'll be able to grow and feel really good about yourself and help a lot of other people. But if you teach this to somebody, you have to live that way. Otherwise it's fraud. And we take that very, very seriously. That's how I live. Every second of my life, I've been a part of the problem you know, for for a large part of my life. And now I want every second of my life to be a part of the solution. People always ask us, um, you know, how do you do that work? Oh, you must, it must be so depressing. And, um, you know, it's so joyful. It is so joyful. We see miracles every day at SAGE. We live in the middle of miracles. They're palpable.
6: Let me ask you if you had a young person who was aspiring to be a leader, perhaps one of these people that you've looked at and said, yes, they can be one of our leaders. What would you advise them to do? The
9: social work model brings with it more of a patriarchal way of doing things. I will tell you what to do, and I need you to be grateful (laughs) and, um, you know, act a victim. And I've even noticed in my own community that I am treated by some people as an uppity ex-ho, you know? And it's like, how dare you, like, speak your mind? How dare you want to run your own program, you know? We need you to act like a victim and say thank you, a lot. A major part of the program is for women and girls to know that they are not victims. They are someone who has experienced victimization. And there are things that they need to do to, one, prevent further victimization and create standards. Create standards and healthy boundaries. Yes, it might mean that you're going to be alone. You have to start from ground zero, build a new social support system. I hear people say all the time, and it's pretty common knowledge, that we're in a pretty sad shape in this world. People don't think that it, that just one person can make a difference. They act pretty powerlessly. When that happens, they can always look to Sage for inspiration and say, if that Norma Hotelling, that ex-prostitute, formerly homeless woman, 21-year heroin addict, can not only turn her life around, but change communities, change the lives of other women, and, and in many cases, change the world, I can do something different for myself and my community.
0: Thanks for listening to the Chief Executive Podcast. I'm Mark Thompson. And please don't forget to like and subscribe for more episodes every week.